Hello and welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, the leading cybersecurity site for high-level security experts. This week, we are talking about the hot topic of cyber extortion, the crime involving an attack or threat of an attack coupled with a demand for money or some other response in return for stopping or remediating the attack. To discuss the issue, I was joined by Tim Lamben, director of the Global Response Team at NYA. Tim's background is fascinating. He spent 25 years as an international journalist specializing in war reporting, covering the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in 1979 to Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 2006. I was almost tempted to base the podcast on his war reporting stories, but alas, we stuck to the script. On this episode, we discuss the different types of cyber extortion the criminals are exploiting, when to pay the ransom and when not, the negotiation process itself, how the perception of the value of data changes throughout the negotiation process, and what's the psychology behind it all. This is part one of a two-part interview. You'll be able to catch the second next week, where Tim divulges more excellent cyber extortion stories and advice. As usual, I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a cyber tip of the week. But first, here is Tim on the definition of cyber extortion and how it differs from other types of extortion. So the thing about the, the difference between a, um, a physical kidnap and a cyber extortion is that although the cyber ex- threat actor, the extortionist, will say to you, if you pay a ransom, we will give you your data back, you never get your data back. There is, no, there is no way to get your data back to know that they have either deleted it or um, uh, they send it back to you. They, they can't do that. There will always be a copy of it somewhere. Um, even if you destroy a hard drive you, or, or you wipe a hard drive, you can actually get tools which can resurrect the data off of that hard drive. And so there is no such thing as getting it back. Whereas with a physical kidnap, you literally get a person back. And uh, you can give that person trauma counseling and off they go uh, live the rest of their lives. But in terms of, a, of a, um, a cyber situation, you never get the data back. What will happen is the data will end up on the dark web at $10 for a 1,000 email addresses and, and uh, phone numbers. Um, but it won't ever be destroyed. What you do by paying a ransom in this situation is you decouple your name or the name of your company from that data. That data will still be sold for 10, 10 bucks, 1,000 um, email addresses on the dark web, but it won't say um, company A's data. So as long as you have got your crisis, ma- uh, crisis communications piece in place and you've spoken to your uh, customers and your customers know that there is a risk that they may be contacted, there may be phishing emails and all that sort of thing might be coming down the line, they will be aware and ready to go for it. Um, <clears throat> they will very seldom be able to pin it on the company who has lost the data because everybody's data is out there. Every time you give out a calling card or a business card, you're giving away the same sort of data that you would lose in a Tier 2 attack. And anybody could use that to send a, uh, a, human, in, a human engineering or phishing attack on, uh, on anything. So that's the difference between a kidnap and a, uh, and a cyber event, <clears throat> is that you never get your data back. But is that decoupling of the data, the decoupling of your name from the data, is that guaranteed? 
It is in the model. Yeah, interestingly, um, there are, we know very few, um, in fact, I, I don't know of any cases where once a ransom has been paid, that data is then published. The times when that could happen is if your threat actor was actually an insider who had some particular, um, was angry about the company in some particular way and just wanted to damage the company, but was trying to make some money along the way. So that is completely possible. But the thing is that forensics these days um, in the cybersphere are so good that it would be almost impossible for an insider to get away with it. They would never, <clears throat> never be able to take the money and then uh, go on to uh, either publish and destroy the reputation or destroy uh, data from within a, uh, within a system without being caught. And that's very similar to a physical kidnap. Physical kidnaps don't really happen in Western Europe or in North America because your law enforcement is good enough to be able to track them down, knock in the door and rescue the, the hostage and apprehend the, the kidnappers. And so the same thing for an insider attack. So can you talk me through a typical case that you deal with and how you get involved with it? Okay, so, um, I mean, I must declare right out at the beginning that a lot of the, um, uh, well, just about all the cases that we deal with are insurance-backed. And because they are insurance-backed, we only get to deal with the, the cases that the insurers have sold policies to. So that limits them in, to a great degree. But... In terms of um, what does an attack look like, attacks can be all sorts of things. You can have a DDoS attack, which takes down your capability to do your business on the web. You can get a, um, uh, uh, an insider attack where somebody has found a vulnerability in your defenses, has got into your system, either through a compromised profile or um, the stealing of passwords or whatever it is. They get into your system. They spend time nosing around inside your system. They find out where your data is. And then they can do one of two things. They can either exfiltrate the data, and if you don't have um, guards on your uh, uh, monitoring systems on your, on, your, um, on your ports, then they can take out large amounts of data or they take out large amounts as small um, caches over time. Um, and as long as they don't get caught, they keep on taking out more and more um, uh, data. Or they can introduce a piece of software which will encrypt your data within your system. They will then um, communicate with you and demand a ransom in order to either um, provide the decryption keys or to say that they will delete the data. But as we've just said, you never actually can be sure that they've deleted the data. Um, and then uh, you get others, other uh, events like basically um, phishing uh, events or human engineering where somebody has got in, uh, has um, subverted your uh, email system. They are monitoring all the emails that go out. So when your accounts uh, send out a, an email to a uh, provider, um, and or sorry, the other way around, if they, um, the accounts receive an email, um, that first goes through their filter they replace the provider's bank details with their own details. They then pass it on. Your account sees this. They know that this invoice is coming through. They sign it off. They pay the money into that bank account. Poof, the money's gone. Okay, so they're those kind of exploits as well. So um, those are the main things that we're coming across at the moment. Uh, DDoS attacks, encryption attacks, 
uh, attacks either from inside or from an outsider going in, uh, stealing data or encrypting the data, and from human engineering and phishing attacks. And how does the perception of the value of the data change throughout the incident? So this is all to do with um, what we perceive our data to be about in terms of value. Um, It's an interesting thing that I have watched, particularly in data thefts, where um, customer data has been taken, um, all sorts of operational data might be taken, And the perception at first is, oh, my God, we've been hacked. All of our customer data is out there. We're going to have to tell everybody. Everybody's going to think we're a bad company. And so the perceived value is that it's very high reputationally. But as a number of things happen, first of all, you have to put in in place your crisis communications Uh, crisis communications plan and as your crisis communications plan becomes more uh, more and more stable and more developed and more mature which will take place over time um, so you can be more confident of being able to protect your your uh, reputation and that the right people are told at the right time given the right message through the right medium and you can completely control the news of the event if you can control the news of the event, you maintain your, your uh, or you reduce the amount of damage to your reputation. At the same time, you are basically finding out from the forensics how this happened. And having found out how it happened, you then put in place defenses so that you know, um, so that you make sure that it can't happen again or that it can't continue to happen if the guy has managed to get inside your system. And that is... As that matures, and at the same time your crisis communications plan matures, you get to a point where you can be happy that you have excluded the threat actor, that you're in charge of your message, and therefore you have basically protected your reputation. At that stage, what you have to think about is, has this threat actor stopped us from doing our business? If they've stopped you from doing your business and there's no way to... Um, to restart that or to continue without paying the ransom, then you have to pay the ransom. And that's where we come in as negotiators. We would try to either push back the deadline for the ransom so that you have more time for your forensics to set up the defences and for your crisis communications uh, to become mature so that you're confident of protecting your reputation, or um, trying to reduce the amount that is paid. Now, statistically, we see that um, probably about about 60% of interlocutors will actually talk. And of those, you can probably reduce your your ransom payment by up to 20, 25%. So you can probably cut about a quarter off of it. If they're demanding four bitcoins, you can usually get them down to three. But actually not much less than that. Which is an interesting thing, because when I'm dealing with kidnappers, a kidnapper will come in and say, I want five million. And I will start off and say, we can give you 40,000. And at the end of it, I would expect to, to uh, close out at around about 110, 120,000. There's no way that they're getting five million. But that's because we put in place a resistive strategy. They know that it's a business. And also, they know that they have to give the person back at the end. Um, with the threat actor in a cyber case, as I said to you before, 
you never get the data back. There's always a way for them to leverage that for more money from other people. And so the negotiation in a cyber thing is, in a cyber extortion, is very much more reduced. You don't have the leeway you have. But if you engage in a negotiation and you put in a resistance strategy, you will still be able to get some kind of traction. So you've got your strategy, but how do you talk with them? What are your tips? Well, that's very difficult. Okay. Um, in terms of, um, and, and this is an interesting thing, when law enforcement gets involved in this, law enforcement's negotiating strategy usually comes from a hostage crisis negotiation. Hostage crisis negotiation is not the same as a kidnap negotiation. A hostage crisis is the drunk husband coming back on a Friday night and putting a shotgun to the wife's head. Then the house is surrounded by the police and they have to talk him down so he doesn't pull the trigger. That's a hostage crisis. Short duration, high intensity. It involves a lot of active listening. It involves being subservient. It involves trying to avoid trigger words so that somebody doesn't do something to um, harm the victim. Whereas a kidnap actually involves a fight. You will have a, because it's a resistive strategy, your whole aim in a kidnap situation is to reduce the expectations of the kidnappers. The kidnappers understand that it's a business. They're only there to exchange the, the victim for money. If you kill the victim, you don't get any money because the last thing we will ask for is proof of life. And you have to have done the, the negotiation really badly or they have to have always intended to kill the victim if they would, did that after they actually had the money. Whereas on a cyber situation, it's not like that at all. Um, the cyber situation, you can put in a resistive strategy, but all that resistive strategy can do really in the end is to push out a deadline. And you're saying that, and, and most of the resistive strategies are based around we can't get hold of bitcoins. Because most people listening to this podcast would not know how to actually go and buy a bitcoin, let alone transmit it to somebody else. And so um, you can play upon that inability of most people saying, for heaven's sake, you know, how are we going to get this number of bitcoins? And because bitcoins are so expensive these days, um, there's a lot of compliance that is put in place by the banks so that it's not dirty money that is being laundered through the uh, cyber currency um, situation. And you can't just go up with a million bucks and say, I want a million bucks worth of, of, um, uh, of bitcoins. Because that, you can, but it's going to take about three and a half weeks for the bank to be happy that your money is clean. Uh, they do all sorts of checks and stuff like that to see where that they will do due diligence on your on your uh, on your payment, and obviously in a lot of these cyber cases, I mean the longest I've ever seen it was a three week deadline. Most of them are a lot shorter than that, you know, a few days, maybe a week at the most. So, is there a way of testing the attacker? How do we know they're legit? Um, how do we know that they're legit? Okay, in any extortion, what you're looking for is intent. And capability. So if you are a CISO and you get an email that gets forwarded to you from somebody saying, uh, we've got your data, um, you've got to pay us uh, bitcoins, you go, eh bien, so, you know, uh, prove to me you've got my data. Um, even if they send you a, um, a hashed file, 
you would then need to put that into a sandboxed computer. In other words, a computer not connected to anything, so that if there is something bad in the uh, in the in the attachment, um, it doesn't in, infect your whole system. So you sandbox the computer, you open the attachment, you apply the uh, the decryption key which they would have supplied to you, and you see whether it's one of your files. If it's one of your files, then they prove capability. They've obviously got hold of one of your files or a series of your files and they've encrypted it, and they can do that to all the other stuff. Okay, if, they, um, if, if you decrypt it and it's just a load of shash, hey, you still haven't uh, shown to me that you actually have it. If they give you a link and they show you a mirror site that has a server with the listings of all your, uh, of your data on it, that might just be a snapshot of uh, your data hierarchy. So you have to be able to go in and be allowed to look at, you can nominate to them. You say, okay, I want to see this file, this file, this file, and this file. Show me that you actually have the data out of those files. If they can't show you that, they're not in the game. That's how you, you find out whether they really are who they say they are. And where do you recommend these negotiations take place? Is it a good idea to take place within the organization or at home? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. Um, you know, part of the... Part of the crisis communications piece that surrounds an event like this is to keep the circle tight. Um, information security is everything in this particular situation. Um, until such time, and this is all to do with reputational protection, until such time as you are in control of the message and your crisis communications plan is mature, you want to make sure that the circle of knowledge is very tight and small. So we would um, advise that first, the very first thing you do is everybody who's involved in this thing goes offline and starts using an independent email system because you don't know where the bad guy is. He might be able to read your, your email. So you want to make sure that any communications is going through a completely different system. Now, anything even as basic as just getting a Gmail account for everybody who's involved. So first of all, you take it off the normal net. And having done that, we would suggest that actually there is um, that the crisis management team dealing with it meets in a location which is not going to be available to the eyes of the whole staff. You know, it depends on the size of the op uh, operation. I mean, I did a, um, a, uh, an interesting case um, where the company um, had been growing rapidly and they'd actually just taken a lease on uh, a floor on the 17th floor. They were usually working on the 21st floor. That's where the, the bulk of their people were. And um, this thing hit them. And they had been going to move into that floor on the 17th uh, the following week. And so the crisis management team just moved in there and everybody else was told, actually, the move's been delayed because the suppliers haven't actually brought in all the furniture, et cetera, et cetera. And then people were coming down and they, you know, we had different routes for them to get into the 17th so they wouldn't be observed by their colleagues, et cetera. And in that way, the circle of knowledge was kept much tighter while the thing was brought to a situation where those messages were ready to be disseminated in a controlled fashion. And is it ever worth just paying the ransom without negotiation? Yeah, sometimes you have to. Sometimes there's no negotiation. So often they will not, and, and uh, threat actors are becoming more and more like this. So the kind of guy who's sitting in his attic room somewhere um, eating pizza at 2 o'clock in the morning and hacking you is likely to be the guy that you can talk to. 
um, state actors, uh, usually um, uh, extra nationals, in other words, working from other countries where no police jurisdiction is ever going to be able to get at them, Russia, Ukraine, uh, North Korea, all these kind of places, um, those interlocutors are very unlikely to um, get into a negotiation with you. And they will not leave you any way of doing that. I mean, we've had to come up with all sorts of ingenious ways of trying to raise them. Um, but uh, very seldom has that actually worked. Uh, because if the guy doesn't want to talk to you, he doesn't want to talk to you. And at that stage, what do you do? You pay the money. But there are strategies for indicating to them um, it's almost um, negotiation without words. So he said, you've got 10 days in which to pay. We make a decision, okay, we're going to have to pay this. We want him to know that we are going to pay this. And in a kidnap scenario, that's what we would call, um, we make an initial offer. The initial offer is there to put what we say is a safety net underneath the victims. It sends the message to the, to the kidnappers that, yes, we're serious, we intend to pay, but we're not going to pay everything immediately. Because if you pay everything immediately in any extortion, the guys will think, oh, that was a bit easy. Why don't I just keep whatever it was and ask you to pay again? And you get double-crossed. And so um, paying everything that's asked immediately, not a good idea. Um, so in terms of, a, of a, a cyber event when there is a deadline that you can work towards, you can start off. I wouldn't have said, um, say it was a 10-day deadline. On day five or day six, I would make a deposit of a significant amount, but not the full amount. And then I would eke it out in small bits that are of varying sizes. So you wouldn't go give them five, if they've asked for 10 bitcoins, give them five bitcoins and then one bitcoin and one bitcoin the next day and whatever. I would give them four and a half bitcoins and I'd give them 0.75 of a bitcoin and then I'd give them two bitcoins and then I'd give them 1.25 bitcoins. And so they can see that you are paying, but you're struggling to pay. And by the time you get to day 10, I would have it down at about 7.75, maybe eight, which shows there's still a little bit to go and I can guarantee you that he will not carry out whatever he says, publish the data or destroy the whatever, because he's already got this money and he can see that you're still paying. And he will carry on as long as you eke that out, because that is a, um, uh, a psychological um, part of an extortion that as long as you pay money, they will keep taking it. So if they think that there is still more money to come, they will not do what they they. Uh, they say they will do, and therefore you can push back the deadline so that you can mature your crisis communications plan and you can put the defences in place. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned psychology. And it seems that you're putting into practice a, a strategy that empowers the, the victim, um, gaining more control. But what is actually happening here? Talk about the, the psychology between the attacker and how the victim is supposed to respond in the attacker's view. Yeah, so the attacker thinks always that they are in total control and that they, um, they are putting the fear of God into, the, into the, the victim. But the answer to that is no, they're not. Because although they might have something which is very dear to the victim, i.e. either a kidnapped victim or their data, 
The other side of it is they don't have the money yet. And their plan only succeeds when they get the money. So I've known some uh, CEOs of companies who basically they have lost a lot of data, maybe not all of their data, but they have lost a lot of data, who basically just turn around and say, we're not going to pay. That's it. You know, off you go. And uh, then they might go and publish the data, and there have been some very well-known cases where data has been published. But at that stage, um, the company, if it's got its... Um, uh, if it's got its crisis communications plan in place and it's mature, can still, to a large degree, control that message. And if you can control that message and you reckon that the damage to your reputation, is, you can live with the, the degree of damage that you're going to sustain, then you can give them two fingers and tell them that you're not going to do it. And um, in the end, the... The extortionist does not ever have all the ha- all the cards in his hand. Really doesn't. Not as a kidnapper, not as a, uh, a cyber thief. Thanks to Tim. And now time for our cyber tip of the week. Don't let your web browser store your passwords. It might be more convenient, but there are so many ways that it can come back to bite you. So stay safe. Thank you for listening. You can tweet us your questions and comments on at Tice, that's T-E-I-S-S. But for now, it's bye from us. Join us next week for more Cybersecurity Insight.